0: Our hearts to exulting and exalting in the Lord our God. Um, I had said, do not let the kids go to children's church until I dismiss them. So, kids, why don't you guys come on up front uh, for this first portion of the scripture? Um, today we're going to, uh, yeah, just come on up here. You can have a sit on the floor or these chairs, crowd out Jeff and Maria Elena up here. Yep. Pretend he's Santa Claus. No. No beard and very thin. Um, today, as you notice in your bulletin, we're, um, my sermon is from Colossians chapter one, verse fifteen thousand and twenty. The, uh, it's, it's too good of a typo to pass up, and I can pick on Barb because she's my office mom. So it's, just, it's supposed to be a dash there. It's Colossians 1, 15 to twenty. So um, Christ's great and cosmic work, and so today we come to what many people believe to be the most important passage of Scripture about Jesus and the, the whole Bible. And we know that really all of the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus and predicts prophetically His coming, His suffering, His reign, His salvation. The Gospels present Jesus to us with the historical accounts of, his fo- of Jesus' life, recounting the deeds which He undertook in His life here. Here. And in the book of Acts, we see the account of how the news about Jesus spread to the whole Roman world after he rose from the dead at the time of the apostles. And in the epistles, they do a good bit of explanation about Jesus and who he is and what his sacrifice meant. And they give practical instruction to Christians how they ought to live in light of who Jesus is. And then finally, in Revelation, we see it's also about Jesus. Except it's about how Jesus will bear upon the future. Because someday He's coming back. And His return is going to have a major influence on this world and on humanity. And when He returns to reign and judge. But Colossians here, according to many throughout the centuries, does a more extensive and clear job than about any other portion of Scripture describing exactly who and what Jesus is. And I hope you're ready to put your learning hats on. Uh, and to, to pray today and to take some good notes because Colossians, I believe, is going to speak to us mightily. Um, so let me pray for us real quick and then i got a little story to tell you guys. Okay? Father, I just come before You this morning humbled by what is before me in Colossians. Lord, that I, a mere man, um, have an opportunity to speak of the glory of Jesus. Lord, in so many ways, I'm not worthy at all to explain Jesus Christ to these people. So thank you for your word in Colossians that I can lean on. That tells us the truth about him. I pray for blessing on this sermon and on these people who hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout history there have been some really wrong ideas about Jesus, about the nature of Jesus. And the passage in Colossians that we're here at today, when it's understood rightly, it dispels a whole lot of those bad ideas about Jesus. And so given that today is the first Sunday of Advent, I thought, you know what, it's really appropriate to begin the message with somewhat of a Christmas story. You guys ready to hear a Christmas story? All right. Uh, It's from church history, and it's uh, reportedly true. Okay? Reportedly true. So we don't know for sure that it is, but it's very possible that it is true. And it involves Santa Claus. You guys ready for this? And this story is not any other like, any other story you've ever heard about Santa Claus because you've only heard sanitized and and family-friendly stories about Santa Claus, but there's some other stories about him that are not so sanitized. Some of you are aware of the legend of Santa Claus that traces back to a real figure from church history named St. Nicholas. He was the Bishop of Myra. And the stories you've likely heard about him probably involve his generosity to the poor uh, and the way that he used to slip coins uh, to people secretly in their shoes or in their stockings uh, by reaching into their windows. But the story I'm going to share with you today is a very different side of St. Nicholas. So the year was 325 AD and the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time was a man named Constantine and he convened a very important council for the churches. Constantine, the ruler, had become a Christian and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. But there was a controversy among the churches and among some of the leaders in the churches regarding just what exactly was the nature of Jesus. Who was he? What was he? Was he just a very important man who God empowered in a special way? Was he a small g God? Was he actually God and only appeared to be a man? Or was he actually God and actually man, as most of the leaders believed already? And Constantine wanted to resolve this issue once and for all. And so he called a meeting of all the bishops that led churches all throughout the Roman Empire. And this special meeting was called the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea. And according to some reports that were given of all that, who attended this meeting, it would seem that Nicholas, St. Nicholas, was one of those who was present at the council. And Nicholas was one who believed what the Scriptures teach about Jesus, that he was both God and man. And Nicholas felt it was very important to be at the meeting so that the final decision arrived at by the council was in agreement with Scripture. But there was another man who was at this council, another bishop actually. He was from Alexandria, and his name was Arius. When you hear Arius' name, I want you to go, Yeah, hiss, right? Okay? Arius. There you go, good job. So, Arius had a very error-ridden view of the nature of Jesus. He believed that Jesus was created and not God. He, ra- he, he believed that Jesus was the first entity that God the Father created and that he had some attributes of divinity, but he was not eternal and he was not himself divine. The sad truth is that Arius' view, very good, was spreading and gaining traction in the churches at the, in those days. And Arius also wanted to attend this meeting to convince the council that he was right about Jesus. So Nicholas and Arius were at the council together. At some point during the meeting of the council, Arius... probably shouldn't have told him to do that. It's because it's starting to annoy me now. So I'm kidding. You keep doing it. I'm just kidding. The guy who starts with an A was standing before the assembly and making his best case for these wrong ideas about who Jesus was. And the rest of the bishops at this council sat and they listened respectfully to Arius. And so did Nicholas for a time. But as Arius spoke on and on about his version of Jesus that was so foreign to what the Bible taught about him, Nicholas began to become enraged. So enraged that he stood up from his seat Unable to stand it any more, the insults to Jesus any further from Arius, Nicholas arose from his seat, walked across the room, and he slapped Arius right in the face. Did you guys know this? Have you guys have heard this story? Yeah. I heard that story. You told me it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Spoiler alert. All right. So, of course, everyone in the room just gasped in shock and amazement of what they had just witnessed. Granted, they didn't agree with Arius, but how could Nicholas, a fellow bishop whom they respected, behave in such a way? It was against the law for anyone to strike someone in the presence of the emperor, so Nicholas was in trouble. But in this case, given Nicholas's reputation and the unusual nature of what just happened, Constantine told the bishops that it was up to them to determine how they were going to punish Nicholas. And the bishops decided to put Nicholas in jail. St. Nicholas was in jail for the rest of the council. And they removed his mantle of bishopry, which is like a, a cloak that he wore or a sash that he wore that designated him as a bishop. It was, a, they, it was very disrespect to, to Nicholas. Now, there's some speculation as to whether this legend that exists is actual history, but there's a very good chance that it did happen. Nicholas was so passionate for the glory and honor of Jesus that he let his emotions in that moment get the best of him. If this is true, it would have been better for Nicholas to remember the commandment to be angry but not sin, right? So I I have to tell you that this story makes me want to rethink some of our Christmas songs. Can you think of any? I've heard these throughout the years, but I think they got it a little bit wrong. How about this one? Jolly old Saint Nicholas Slapped Arius in the face. (laughs) Spent a couple of nights in jail for his pugnacious ways. What do you think? I think it's a good one. Here comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus. Getting up from his place. He heard Arius lie about Jesus. Now he slapped him in the face. Oh, you better watch out. <laughs> you better not lie. You better not spread heresies about Christ or Santa Claus will slap you in the face. All right. All right. All right, kids, go ahead. Go down to Children's Church. All right. So, of course, I'm being a little bit silly uh, but in all serious, all seriousness, Arius led many people astray because of the errors that he taught about Jesus. Yes, you guys can't hiss, okay? Stop that, <laughs> rebellious and disobedient generation. Um, he led many people astray because of the errors that he taught about Jesus. And uh, some of those errors were because he misinterpreted parts of this very passage in Colossians that we're here at today. The same errors that Arius taught are actually still alive and well in the false religions of the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. These all deny the clear, straightforward understanding of this passage here in Colossians regarding the nature of Jesus. So as we dig into the passage today, it'll help us to follow along if we think of the passage as describing Christ in relation to four things. So, for you note takers, here's the four things that we are going descri- to that, that that Paul uses to describe Christ in relation to, and the conclusion that we'll reach about Jesus after we look at these four things will be crystal clear. So our path forward will be as follows: we're going to look at Christ in relation to God. Secondly. Christ in relation to the visible creation. Christ in relation to the invisible creation, number three. And four, Christ in relation to the new creation, or the church. And we'll conclude our time together with a summary given by Paul of Christ's nature and work, given in verses 19 and 20. So let's dig into the passage. And before I do, it should be noted that these five verses are generally recognized by New Testament scholars as comprising a song or a hymn that was sung by the early churches. And Paul was possibly quoting that song. And the reason that they believe this is because there's a number of linguistic and grammatical differences in these verses from the verses that are around them. Uh, And these differences are a little clearer to see in the Greek than they are in the English. Um, But it would seem that Paul was drawing upon something that the people may have already been familiar with in order to reinforce his own teaching and redirect the Colossians back to a formerly agreed upon truth about Jesus. Because remember, there was a false teaching that was emerging in Colossae. So verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the use of this phrase, image of God, would have made readers of Paul's letter who are familiar with the Old Testament, think of two possible things: Genesis 1:27, where God created man in his own image, and Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 to 6, which is the prohibition in the Ten Commandments toward making graven images or idols in any likeness of God, or an assumed likeness of God. Now to the Greek readers of Paul's letter, the word "image or icon could have carried two nuances of meaning. The first one would be representation. The image represented or symbolized what the object pictured, like the image of a coin or a reflection in a mirror. But it could also, in a secondary sense, convey manifestation. So you had representation and manifestation, meaning that the symbol was more than just a symbol. The symbol brought with it the actual presence of the object. So to the Jew and to the Greek, or the Gentile, Paul was proclaiming something unique about Jesus. He was more than just a man and more than just a symbol. God the Father is invisible. And since He cannot be seen, the only way He could be apprehended or approached was spiritually. No one has ever been able to see God, and no one was permitted to represent the invisible spirit God with any physical form for that would have constituted idolatry. That is, until Jesus. In Jesus, the invisible God becomes visible, just as we sang this morning. The spiritual God becomes physical also. And the worship of Him as the image of God does not constitute idolatry. John 1.18 says this, No one has seen God at any time, The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. This is different than the image of God that all of humanity shares or bears. For man's representation of that image is marred by sin but not the sons. To look upon Jesus when He walked this earth, before and after His resurrection, was to look upon God Almighty. John 14, verses 8 to 10. You remember what Philip asked Jesus and how Jesus responded? Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Just show us the Father, and it's enough. But Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The next phrase in the verse, the firstborn of all creation, what does this mean? It's worth noting here that many English translations render this phrase as firstborn over all creation. And that sense is certainly very accurate in the context. But even if it's rendered of all creation, instead of overall, the sense is the same in that what's being expressed here is Jesus' authority over creation. The firstborn is what proves this. The word firstborn is what proves this. The word in the Greek is prototokos. And it can mean very simply, in a literal sense, the first one to be born. Referring to the birth order of a number of siblings. It can be understood that way, but you have to look at the context to see how it's being used. Because the term had another very obvious usage in those days that was very different than this literal one. Because that word prototokos also came to refer to a person's status or their importance or their special relationship to God. An Old Testament example of the, the usage of this word in this way is found in Psalm 89, verses 26 to 27, where the psalmist says, He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make Him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth." So in that sense, you see in the Old Testament, it was not used in a literal sense, but in a, in a figurative sense. In the New Testament, this Greek word only occurs eight times. And there's only one usage of this word that is meant in the literal sense, meaning birth order. In all of the other ones, the figurative understanding is meant. And in no sense is it referring to birth order. The, per- the term had to do with the prominence or the preeminence of the one that is addressed in this way. The one with the rights of inheritance. And I think an illustration here would be helpful. Think of the word goat. Goat. Or goat. There's a difference, right? As it's used today. This one's kind of fresh in my memory because I didn't realize what people were talking about until about two years ago, and I'm like, oh, oh, it's an acronym. I get it. I get it. Um, um, it has an alternative meaning. It doesn't just mean like the bearded animal on a farm that eats all of the pop cans that you throw in the yard or your shoelaces as you walk by them. It doesn't just mean that. It also means an acronym for greatest of all time, right? The GOAT. Um, The kids, if they were in here, would know exactly what I meant. If I said, what does goat mean? They would say, greatest of all time. And you all would say, "baa" or something like that. Um, It doesn't always mean that. But in the modern context, when you say that, he's the goat. That's what they mean. Context matters when interpreting what I mean by the word goat. If we were visiting a farm together on a field trip, and the farmer parades a whole bunch of animals in front of us, and then I point to one and say, look, there's a goat. Well, there's the goat. What do I mean? Of course I mean literal goat. But if we went to an NBA game and during the halftime show, the legendary Michael Jordan walks out onto the court and I shout, look, there's the goat. I mean something very different, don't I? Because the context matters for interpretation. And the same is true when you interpret Scripture. And in this section of Colossians, the context does not permit us to interpret the word firstborn in its literal sense. It's meant here in a figurative sense. Does that make sense? Okay, thank you. If Paul meant the word that way in its literal sense, then it's describing Jesus as the first being created. And that's the exact error that Arius made when interpreting this passage. You see, Arius was actually hoping to protect Christianity from the charge of polytheism. And so Arius taught that Jesus was the firstborn part of creation. He was the created creator. If Paul meant it that way, though in this passage in Colossians, then it contradicts everything else that he states about Jesus. Based on the rest of the immediate context, it's abundantly clear that Paul meant this word in its figurative sense to convey Jesus' status as the preeminent authority over the creation. So let's move on. Verse 16. "For by him all things by him all thing, were all things created." In verse 15, we got a sense of Paul's argument of who Jesus is in relation to God. To Paul, Jesus is God. It's very clear in these verses that to Paul, Jesus is God. And so now that we're in verse 16, we deal more with the second and the third relationship that I mentioned at the beginning. Jesus in relation to the visible and invisible creation. It starts with by Him. And many translations, if you're using them, a different one than the NASB says, in Him were all things created. And this preposition relates to the sphere of Christ's role in creation. Creation has its origin in the mind of Christ. Christ thought of and made preparation for all things in creation. They all came to be within the creative purview of Jesus. Creation came to be in the sovereign mind and will of Jesus. But it was also by His creative power and ability that all things came to be. As it says later in the verse, all things have been created through him. Jesus is the creator of all that is. Paul goes on to describe the scope of that creation by mentioning four different dimensions of it. All things to Paul included these things things in heaven or on earth. Also described in reverse order as visible and invisible. Things in heaven are invisible, the things on earth are the visible. And heaven here, given the context, does not refer to the sky or the atmosphere or space. It refers rather to the realm of the spirits. The dwelling place of God. And the place where Christians are placed in a spiritual sense at the time of their salvation. Ephesians 1.3 says this, and it uses the same word, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is what Paul's referring to, the heavenly places, spiritual blessings, the invisible realm. In verse 20 of Ephesians 1, Paul says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul here means not the sky, not the atmosphere, not space. He means the dwelling place of God. It's also the realm or place where the evil spirits Dwell, and the realm where Christians engage in spiritual warfare. The spirit realm. Both earth and heaven, both invisible and visible, are created realities. And both owe their, ex- owe their existence to Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to describe the scope further of all the things that, that Jesus created. And he includes the following. Thrones or dominions. Or rulers or authorities. And this little list here gives us a great interpretive clue as to Paul's purpose in writing Colossians. It also gives us a good clue into the nature of what that false teaching was that was cropping up in, in Colossae that Paul was trying to combat. Because it would seem that the Colossians were flirting with what some people call pre Gnostic teachings. Or uh, pre Gnostic ideas. You remember from the last sermon, you might not, you probably don't, but the word gnosis is that Greek word for knowledge. Or as Paul uses it here, epi, epignosis. We talked about this last time. Um, Paul prayed back in earlier verses in this chapter that they would be filled with the knowledge of God, the gnosis, the epignosis of God. Um, he wanted them to have that knowledge the Colossians were becoming interested in a different kind of knowledge. Not the knowledge of God's will, but instead they were wanting to know the will of these other spiritual thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. They were looking for knowledge from them. They were seeking them. And it would seem that the false teachers were trying to convince the people that in order to obtain this knowledge, that they needed, they must go through various angelic or spirit beings that Paul here mentions. To convince the people of the necessity of seeking these beings, the false teachers had to denigrate Jesus and minimize the importance of His nature and who He really was. And they led them in a deception. And they included Jesus as just a part of that hierarchy of angelic beings. In other words, if Jesus was a lesser created being then the importance of these other spirits remained this is Paul's point Jesus is not a created being he's not he created everything else including these lesser spiritual beings, these thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities all things, verse 16 goes on to say, have been created through him and for him Visible, invisible, earthly, heavenly, all physical beings, all spiritual beings were created through Christ and for Christ. They belong to Him. You belong to Him. They exist to accomplish His purposes. More on the importance of this phrase, for Him, in a little later. But I'm going to move on right now to verse 17. Paul goes on, he says about Jesus, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So here we have a fourth important preposition. Because verse 16, we had by or in him, we also had through him and we also had for him. Now the preposition is before Jesus. Jesus is before all things. Now back at the council of Nicaea, Arius attempted to argue that Jesus was a created being. He made a proposal regarding Christ stating the following. Here's what Arius said. Regarding Christ, that there was once when he was not. That there was once when he was not. And this proposition was explicitly condemned at the council. And this verse and this phrase that he is before all things Proves that the council's decision to condemn Arius was correct. The sense of this phrase is temporal. In other words, it has to do with time. Before anything in all of creation came to be, Jesus was there. He's always been there. Genesis 1, verse 1: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul is saying, Jesus is the one in the beginning who was God that created the earth and the heavens. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul is conveying the same exact principle in this statement about Jesus to the Colossians. Jesus was before all things. He was preexistent. And by virtue of Jesus' uncreated pre-existence, He has priority over all of these other created spirit beings. He's greater than all of them. He was before them. And in fact, He was their source. They only exist because of Him. Paul goes on. In Him all things hold together. This visible and this invisible creation, the systems of earth and the systems of heaven, the hierarchy of spirit beings, it all came about because of Him. And it remains because of Him. This is a repudiation to deist or agnostic philosophies that see God as the Creator, but not the attentive and loving sustainer of all that He has made. The psalmist, I think, understood this point really well. Psalm chapter 104, verses 2-9 to 9, speaks of the creation, and he says of God, Covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a a tent curtain. He lays the beams of His upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds His messengers. Flaming fire His ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. He spoke of God as the creator, as the one who established this. But he goes on in verses 10 to 20, speaking of God's sustaining, ongoing work in his creation. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which He planted, where the birds build their nests and the stork whose home is the fir tree. The high mountains are are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge in the Shani. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lion roars after their prey and seek their food from God. God sustains All that he has made. He didn't just wind up the watch and let it run. He's constantly attentive and sustaining in a loving way. And the stability that we experience in the creation all about us is due to God's sustaining power. The cycles of the seasons, the precision of the celestials and the cosmos all operate because of his sustaining work that never ceases. The compatibility of our earth with the sustaining and flourishing of life is unique as far as we can tell from anywhere else in all of the universe. God has designed it that way and God in a special sense cares for and sustains this creation. You know, recently William Shatner had the experience of going to outer space with, space with Jeff Bezos. Did you guys see this on the news? It was an interesting story. It was kind of fun to watch him get back to earth and see the emotion that uh, that, that experience brought to him. You know, Shatner, uh, when, he, when he went up there, he expected to look out at the vast expanse of space away from the vantage point of earth and to see hope and potential... And excitement, but he didn't see any of that. Instead, he described his experience looking out into that void as a profound sadness, as if he was looking into death. And he left that experience with, with a profound sense of gratitude for the warm and life giving cradle that is the earth to mankind. Yet he did not see fit to acknowledge and thank the Creator. Who sustains this planet that we call our home? We can still pray for William Shatner that he ought to thank the Creator rather than the creation which we experience. Paul's point to the Colossians is that all of this glorious order that exists even now is because of Jesus. He keeps things from flying out of place and disintegrating into chaos. The famous occultist poet, William Butler Yeats, wrote a poem entitled, The Second Coming. Here's an excerpt from it. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Yet there is much in this created order that does not fall apart, isn't there? The systems and the civilization designed by man often and routinely throughout history fall apart, but not that which Jesus wrought. What he creates, he holds together. And though he allows times of turbulence to come, and in the future he has ordained a great undoing that will happen, it's only for the purpose of creating a yet greater resurrection order to display his glory. And it's to this prophesied greater order that that Paul now draws our attention to. Jesus is the sustainer. In verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. So Paul has described Jesus in relation to God. He's described Jesus in relation to the visible creation. He's described Jesus in relation to the invisible creation. And now he describes Jesus in relation to the new creation. Christ's headship is a continuation of the main theme of all of these verses. Christ's superiority, Christ's preeminence, Christ's status, Christ's preexistence, Christ's authority. Paul's point is that none can exceed Jesus in any category. They cannot exceed him because they don't precede him. Both in the physical and the spiritual creation, Jesus reigns. And now, yet again, in the new creation. Jesus reigns. Amen. Amen. The imagery of the body is used here. And Paul's used this imagery before. If you think Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And that headship of Christ conveys three things. The first is this, Christ's authority. As head, Jesus is in charge. He's the master. He's the ruler. The second thing, it conveys is Christ's control. Jesus provides leadership and direction and a controlling force to the church that animates the body and gives it motion. The third thing that it conveys is that Christ is the organizing principle of the body. He holds the creation together just as He holds that together. He also holds the body of Christ together. He's the organizing principle He is the church's stability and sustenance and power. The body is connected to Christ and is Christ's visible presence that remains in the created realm. When the world sees the church, they're seeing the visible expression of a brand new kingdom. The kingdom of the beloved son from verse 13. The world sees evidence of a new creation, a recreation of redeemed humanity that comprises the church. This is Christ's body. This new creation was initiated in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the beginning, it goes on in verse 18. Another allusion to Genesis 1.1, and again this affirms Jesus' preexistence and only deity is preexistent. Everything else is created. Anything that's created is not deity, is not God. Only deity is preexistent. Again, he's called the firstborn, but in this case, it's from the dead. That same term, prototokos, is here again, and it's not referring to the birth order or the resurrection order, because Jesus was not the first one that was resurrected from the dead. Think of Lazarus. Think of the widow of Zarephath. Think of Uh, Jairus' daughter, these all were resurrected before Jesus. He's not referring to birth order or resurrection order. The term is again referring to Jesus' status as preeminent and having authority. Authority over a realm, a new realm of existence, a redeemed and resurrected existence. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Everything. Are you seeing all of the firsts? I love it. In the Greek, it's prototokos, prototokos, proteos. And I really like the way that the New American Standard Bible translates this because it showcases the firsts. He's the firstborn over creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's first place. He's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. Jesus is first. How can it be That Jesus can attain this superiority over all things. Well, it goes back to his relationship to God. And so in verse 19, Paul reiterates Jesus' nature in relation to God. He is God. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Jesus is God. The word for is causal. Causal. The reason Jesus is supreme is because He's God. This is so important for Paul to communicate to the Colossians that he restates it again almost verbatim in Colossians chapter two, verse nine, and we'll get there. But he says, "In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form." One of the strongest statements in all of the Bible regarding the deity of Jesus Christ: Jesus is fully God, and that word "fullness." Or in the Greek, pleroma, was a specific term used in later Gnostic writings. And this is why many believe that the Colossian heresy was an early iteration of Gnosticism. Perhaps maybe in its beginning stages. The Gnostics believed that the spirit beings, or those thrones, dominions, dominions, etc., they believed that they were emanations that came from God. And they called these emanations Aeons. And the Gnostics were all about trying to obtain assistance and knowledge and power from these aeons, these other spirit beings that they believed were emanations from God. And the accumulation of this knowledge and the means of communicating with these other spirit beings was shrouded in mystery and ritual. The later usage of the Gnostics of the term the fullness referred to the the totality of all of these emanations from God. So Paul is saying to the Colossians that in Jesus, all the fullness that the Gnostics ascribed to these other spirit beings in their totality, whatever power or knowledge you seek from these other aeon spirits, Jesus has it. These are not to be worshipped or treated with reverence or sought out. Only Jesus is worthy of this. He has all the fullness of Almighty God, and there is no need for another. Again, this is one of the strongest statements regarding Jesus' deity in all of Scripture. Gnosticism, as it later came to be called, was nothing but repackaged paganism. And it's essentially the same thing that we see today in our modern times in the New Age mysticism movement, or in occultism within secret societies, or Wicca, It's just repackaged Gnosticism. All of these modern iterations of this age-old heresy need a healthy dose of what Paul taught the Colossians. Because whatever their mystical arts can conjure from these eagerly deceptive spirits that they seek communion with, it'll never match what Christ offers. Nor satisfy what these people are looking for. They'll never find what it is they're looking for by tapping into these other spirit beings in the spirit realm. Because in verse 20, only in Jesus does God the Father give us what we really need. In Jesus only does God the Father reconcile all things to Himself. No other being, whether earthly or heavenly, whether invisible or visible, whether a throne or a dominion or a ruler or an authority, no other being will ever be able to reconcile you to God. Reconciliation is only possible through Jesus. Amen. Reconcile is a term that in scriptures used to describe bringing a relationship back to a former state of harmony. Today we use it in two senses. We use it in a relational sense when friendly relations are restored between people who have been at enmity. And in a secondary sense, in an accounting sense, when one financial account is made consistent with another, they're said to be reconciled. Paul is stating here that Jesus brought about this restored harmony between God and mankind. He's also stating that this harmony is going to be far more extensive than just referring to God's relationship with mankind. Because he says all things are to be reconciled. Thus, it won't just be mankind that will be redeemed. It will be the, the whole creation stained and marred by sin that will be restored from its groaning and its grief and its bondage to decay that we see in Romans 8, verses 20-22. to 22. All of creation groans and longs for this reconciliation to God. And we'll, we'll talk about more of this reconciliation and the extent of what Paul means here. Next week, because it's going to comprise what we talk about next week in that sermon as well. But suffice it to say that Paul is not saying that these rebellious spirits um, that deceive mankind will be restored and saved. He's not saying that. Nor is he saying that every human being in a universalistic sense is going to be restored and saved. But like I said, more on that next week. We'll talk more about that. The explanation for reconciliation comes in the next phrase. Having made peace. Jesus brings man peace with God. Hear me here. Your greatest need in all of life is to be reconciled to God. And until you are reconciled to God, you will never have a moment's peace. Your heart will never find itself at rest and at ease until you are reconciled to God the allure of these other spirit beings and that, that promise knowledge and that promise power to a person so that they're distinguished above their peers and the rest of normal humankind, they may deliver on their promise to set you in an, in an elite class of wealth and fame and prestige and power. I think they actually do this for people. But one thing they will never give you is Peace. I think of story after story of famous artists in the entertainment industry that signed away their souls for fame and fortune. Many of them literally have said that they've made deals with demons to achieve their goals. And I can't name one of them who exhibits the fruit of a life of peace. Until you're reconciled to God, you will never have peace. Peace. Just as reconciliation to God is the great need of your life, it's also the great purpose of your life. Remember I told you I'd come back to the end of verse 16, towards the end. And that's where it says that all things were created through Him and for Him. And some of you right now are struggling to determine your purpose in life. Some of you are wondering why you've been put here. Why you're alive. What you are even here for. I'll tell you why you're here. You're here for Him. Jesus, the great Creator of all, has made you. And He has made you for a purpose. You were made for Him, you were made to be His. You flounder about in frustration and confusion in this life. Wondering where you will find peace. Wondering where and when you will peacefully settle into a purposeful existence. Yet you just can't make it all make sense. And in your self centered strivings to find the meaning and the purpose and the value of your own life, you miss the greatest of all time. It's Jesus, my friends. It's Jesus. No other entity or person or spirit will give you peace. In no other entity or person or spirit or pursuit will you find your purpose. Only Him. Only Him. Let me ask you where does your pursuit of the knowledge of Jesus rank on your list of priorities? On the list of things that you value? Where does Jesus land? How sad that the one who is firstborn over creation, firstborn from the dead, the one who has first place in everything, finds himself so far down from the top on our own lists of priorities. Where does the greatest of all time rank in your heart? One final thing that can't be missed about Jesus from this verse. He's the first and highest over creation. He's the first and the foremost from the dead. He is first place in all things and he is first in his love for you. No other spirituality or religion or worldview will ever love you the way that Jesus loves you. How do you know this? You ask, Eric, how do you know this? How do you know that he loves me? Just look at the blood on his cross. The potential. The potential for peace with God that Jesus bought for you was paid for with his own blood. And there's not a cross with the blood of any other that was shed for you. None have loved you as Jesus loves you. There again, he's first. He's the greatest of all time. Let's pray. Lord, I think of my own life, and I must confess there are often times where I don't put you first. Lord, my attention and my pursuit is on things that are far lesser than You. Lord, forgive me. Lord, it's sin. How can the One who is firstborn over all creation, firstborn from the dead, first place in all things, first in His love for me, how can I place Him so lowly On my list of priorities. Lord Jesus. Let our hearts. And our minds. And our mouths. And our lives. And our deeds. All reflect. That we believe you to be the greatest of all time. I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Stand if you will for the benediction. as Christ is firstborn over all creation, as He is firstborn from the dead, as He has first place in everything, may it be so that He is first in your hearts as well. And may you leave in the peace of Christ, who shed His blood on a cross, to reconcile you to God. Amen.